I didn't realize how clear it is in those side rooms, overflow rooms. I stepped in there and heard. I wanted him to keep going. Because I don't even have a message tonight. So, yes, I do. Romans chapter 3 to start with, and then we'll fire our usual arrow. Thanks again, Pastor Brown. There's a man who's ready, instant, in season, and out of season. Tonight, the subject, and partly in answer to your prayers that I asked for last night, Christ died and was justified. That's the title tonight. Christ died and was justified. Romans chapter 3, verse 8a. We've launched from this place a defamatory accusation against Paul's gospel. Was this, and he answers it in Romans 6. Indeed, he says in 3.8a, Paul is still in a jousting tournament with the teacher. Paul makes this comment. Indeed, why not just say what we are slanderously reported to be saying? That we should do evil things so that good will come. That's the accusation against any proclamation of an unconditional grace, a gospel of unconditional grace and universal mercy. Shooting the arrow from here, you can almost see a continuity. Romans 5.20, Paul says, moreover, the law slipped in as a side issue so that the trespass would increase Please notice that because that's very important to interpret Romans 7. But where sin abounded, in actuality it says superabounded. Where sin superabounded, not only in its many acts that were produced, but in its intensity. Sin under Paul's homardiology is a cosmic suprahuman power that enslaves, as we're going to see again. But where sin superabounded, grace abounded much more. To the end that, or with the outcome that, just as sin reigned in death, so grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in the life of the coming age, or eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As sin reigned in death over all, So grace reigns through righteousness, resulting in eternal life for all. Firing the arrow forward in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. What will we conclude then? This is in the continuity of Romans 3.8a and Romans 5.20. What will we conclude then? Shall we persist in? He has a real strong word here. Persevere in allegiance to is the word. Shall we persevere in allegiance to sin? Sin here, again, must be understood in Paul's understanding as a cosmic power that enslaves. All the human race was enslaved to sin, and all the human race, in one way or another, is complicit and allegiant 
pledges an allegiance to it. Shall we persist in sin so that grace will abound? Paul equates the good of Romans 3.8 with grace in Romans 6.1. Certainly not, he says, in one of his most emphatic meganoitos. Absolutely not. How can those who died to sin, please notice that phrase, how can those who died to sin live any longer in it? As I said last night, that's as absurd as saying if someone died in New Kensington, how can we say that they live anymore in New Kensington? We died to sin. How can we say that we live any longer in it or under it? Verse 3, are you not aware? This is where Paul gets cross-eyed. Staros-eyed. Are you not aware that as many as were immersed into Christ Jesus, we showed last night, That immersion or that baptism was performed not by men, but by the Holy Spirit. As many as were immersed into Christ Jesus were immersed or baptized into his death. Now this goes tandem in tandem with last night's message, so I want you to be aware of that. But under the rubric that justification, rectification, under its new definition for us, is a change of controlling allegiance, per Paul W. Meyer, which we quoted. Justification, or better, rectification, is not just the imputation of righteousness, judicially speaking. That gives the accuser almost the right to charge of a license to sin. But rectification, or justification, and that's dikaiao, one of the most important words in Romans means a change of controlling allegiance. So under the rubric or the title that justification is a change of controlling allegiance, we can add that justification or rectification as a change of controlling allegiance, is part of what we call the word of the cross. We also call it the theology of the cross. The word of the cross, the logos tustaru, in 1 Corinthians one eighteen, we can also rightly call the theology of the cross or the logic of the cross. Justification is not by our human faith, nor is it by our human believing. It is by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why the apostle to the nations, that's Paul, the apostle to the nations did not boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which, he says, I was crucified with Christ to the world, the cosmos. The world is the system of this present transient evil age evil itself is a transient transient passing disappearing problem the present age is called an evil age in Galatians 1 4 by Paul and it's precisely because the age is transient it's on the way out it's passe and the man or the woman who lives in the conformity to that age is obsolete. The word is paleo. 
Palaios, Palaios, old, the old person. And so the apostle to the nations did not boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is a divine act, a divine event by which he was crucified with Christ to the world. And that's the world of this present evil aeon. And by that same cross, the world, he said, the cosmos or the transient evil age is also crucified to him. Galatians 6.14. Same is true for you and me. With the passing age, when I say passing, I mean transient or transitory, on the way out. With the passing age go the superhuman powers that once claimed humanity's allegiance. Sin being the primary power that claimed human allegiance and got it and he had and had it. In Colossians 2.20, Paul assertively states that his readers, and we can add ourselves in with that, together with Christ, died to the elements of this cosmos. These elements, in my view, are called elemental powers. And this is my definition of it, which is a little idiosyncratic because it's not according to classic philosophical definitions. By definition, in our dictionary, American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition, elemental means quote, of such character as to resemble a force of nature in power and effect. Well, certainly sin is that, a force of nature in power and effect, commanding and getting, commanding and having allegiance of the whole human race in Adam. And again, this goes in tandem with last night's message. I'm not going to reiterate that message, but it's extremely essential to have it for this, for the understanding of this. The plural term, which is used in Colossians 2.20, ton stoikion, ton stoikion, is the Greek word used by Paul, which defines these elemental powers. Paul says that we died literally away from these powers, away from these powers, When Christ died, we died away from sin, away from death, away from principalities and powers and their controls. So Paul uses the logic of the cross in the Colossian case to chide some of the members of that congregation who were entertaining the idea of being subjected again all over again to those same elements. You died to those elements. And he says the same thing to the Galatians. Now you're going back to be subjected to those things that have now become weak, totally ripped of their strength, totally destroyed and bankrupt. You're going back under the bankrupt and poor elements of the cosmos. By doing what? By listening to the missionary teachers who are trying to put you back under the law or put you under the law that you never were under and try to gain rectitude or rectification by the works of the law. 
In other words, in Colossians' case, a little more specialized, they were subjecting themselves all over again, some of them, to the same elements of the world to which they had been crucified through the attempt to establish rectitude through a form of legalistic asceticism. Christians do this all the time. Paul similarly scolds the Galatian defectors. They defected to certain nomistic Christian teachers who marginalized the death of Christ. They believed in it. They preached it. They marginalized it. Marginalized the cross. And they preached a circumcision justification, nomistic gospel. So Paul scolds the Galatian defectors to these nomistic teachers in Galatians 4, 8, and 9, where he describes these powers as weak and bankrupt in the light of the cross of Christ and the power of the resurrection. According to the power of the resurrection or compared to the power of the resurrection, these powers that once held sway over us have no more power. That's why I said last night, when someone is delivered from an addiction that they could not control at all and was much too powerful for them. When they're delivered by the Holy Spirit to that, that addiction becomes nothing. It becomes bankrupt. It, becomes, it has no more power over them at all. That's true deliverance. And that person doesn't have to spend the rest of their life confessing to people that they're an addict or that they're an alcoholic or that they're this, or that they're they're a sex addict, or they're this, and they confess it, rather than, I'd rather confess that I was crucified with Christ, to be quite frank with you. So, in Galatians, Paul equates their defection to a gospel of rectitude by the works of the law. He equates it with their former idolatry. But when they were Receiving Paul's gospel, he said, I preach to you and portray to you Christ and him crucified. Who has bewitched you, he said? Who has mesmerized you away from a justification by the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Now, I'm saying all that to build up here to something that is truly astounding. It astounded me today. This applies to Romans 6 also in that sin, capital S-I-N, hamartia, is one of those elemental cosmic powers to which we were subjected. When I say we, I mean all human beings. Another of those powers is hothanatos, death, the last enemy to be destroyed. And still another is the law of Moses, not per se, not in itself, but as commandeered and corrupted by sin. The law is never the guilty party or the, the, we could say, the culprit, the perpetrator. In Romans 6 and 7, the adversary of the I is not the law, but sin as a cosmic power that corrupts the law. In Paul's homardiology, or doctrine of sin, Sin is a personified power which claims the allegiance of all human beings and has it. 
We live in a time when people are accusing, there, there's a buildup now to a civil type of a civil war that's happening right now. The news is no longer reporting news, but reporting what someone said, some egregious, terrible thing about someone else who's so offended that this person reacts against this person. And it's as if nobody really understands that we're all under sin, that sin has all of our allegiance. And they're, they're emphasizing certain forms of sin. This is a rassonement buildup that's coming to critical mass that's bringing the season of freedom that God gave to this country to a stop, to an end. And if you want to know what powers are doing, they're not colluding to affect elections. They're colluding to produce divisiveness in a country to destroy the fabric of the nation. And in the process, to destroy the foundations that are rooted in the scriptures. Our season of freedom as, a client, as what we used to call a client, every nation is a client nation to God because client means dependent on God. All the nations are dependent on God. But our favor from God as a nation and the season of freedom that he has afforded us is about to end. It's, a, it's almost over. You want to know what time it is? For our nation, that's what time it is. And so this gospel becomes all the more writ large in our times. And yet people don't really pay attention to it. There's far more important things going on, they think. So, I won't get into a pastoral rant about that right now, even though the temptation is very intense. But you're the last crowd that needs to hear such an exhortation, so why do it? Now, apart from the invading grace of God that invades this evil aeon, not only invades this aeon, but invades the citadel of the human will, apart from the advent and the event of Christ which is the advent of faith and faithfulness in Galatians 3, 23 and 25. Sin has our allegiance. Sin has it. Apart from the invading grace of God, apart from the effects of the advent of faith into this world. Faith came into this world with Christ's advent. And that's the faithfulness of Christ that justifies that's why Galatians 3.23 equates the coming of faith with the coming of Christ. The advent of Christ and the event of his crucifixion is the faith that justifies us, not your human believing. That's why Romans or Galatians 3.26 goes on to say, you are all sons of God through faith of Jesus Christ, which is the faithfulness of Christ that's described in 3.23 and 3.25. The invasive advent of God in Christ into this world, culminating with his crucifixion, his passion, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his exaltation. And there's a lot of different things we have to understand about that. Because even after resurrection, he was still on his way to a glorification, a transfiguration state. And when he saw Mary Magdala, 
in the garden, he didn't let her embrace him because he said, I have not yet ascended. In other words, I'm between resurrection into incorruptible, immortal bodily being and a transfigured form of that through glorification. So it's, there's not time to embrace right now. There's a time to embrace and there's a time not to embrace right now. It's not the time to embrace. He wasn't saying, don't touch me in a clinical sense as a germaphobe. You don't have to be afraid of germs when you're resurrected from the dead. So, Romans 6 deals with the logic of the cross with regard to our death to sin as a cosmic elemental power. While Romans 7, 7 through 25, deals with our death to the elemental power of the law as hijacked by sin. But the law of Moses is never the culprit. Paul doesn't say, he doesn't demonize the law. He does make a very shocking statement, though, in Galatians, where he suggests that the law of Moses was given from Sinai in Sinai, Sinai by angels with God being absent. That's a whole new kettle of fish. We don't want to cook that kettle tonight. The law of Moses is never the culprit. Sin as a personified elemental force or power is the guilty party. That's why Paul will actually go on. It sounds like he's saying what a little kid would say. It's not me. It was sin that was in me. But he's making the point here that sin is the culprit. Sin as a personified elemental power is the guilty party. So here in Romans 6, Paul is all staros-eyed. He invites his readers to become cross-eyed with him. Here's Romans 6, 4. We were buried together with him. Through this aforementioned immersion, through this aforementioned immersion into death, not into water, into death. This aforementioned immersion into death is the mention, the death that was mentioned before, the death of Christ. We were immersed into the death of Christ. This is an act of God the Spirit, not an act of Paul. Paul said, I quit baptizing because people were going around saying I was baptized by Paul. Paul said, that's like saying that Paul was crucified for you. The act of baptism or immersing us into the death of Christ was the act of the omnipotent spirit of the risen Christ. So we were buried together with him. Every event, every part of the event of Christ is identified with us and we are identified with it. His crucifixion, his death, his burial. We were buried together with him through this aforementioned immersion into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. Walk around, conduct our lives in newness of life. Now we've taught on this before. The glory of the Father is his omnipotent love, which raised Jesus his son after such an unspeakably disgraceful and appalling, humiliating death. The glory of the Father is the glory that he gave to his Son 
as an infinitely shocking contrast to his inglorious death. Christ was put to death by some inglorious bastards. All of us. Put to death by the flesh, raised by the spirit, 1 Peter 3.18. His death was appalling, horrifying, disgraceful, ignominious, the worst kind of shameful. And so imagine the contrast of the glory of the father that raised him from the dead. This idea of the glory of the Father raising him and exalting him is encapsulated hymnally or as a hymn in Philippians 2, 8, 9. He became obedient to the extent of death by crucifixion. Therefore, God has also highly exalted him. That is, in exact contrast to the level of the shame and the appalling disgrace of his death, is the exalted glory that the Father gives him in resurrection. So, we are identified with Messiah Jesus in every element of the saving Christ event. And by the saving Christ event, I mean crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification. The idea here is that when Paul saw Jesus, he saw him when he had already been ascended to the Father and glorified. So he saw what Ezekiel saw, the form of a man, but with the radiance of Yahweh, the full radiance of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And that was rather transformative of Saul of Tarsus who suffered the loss of all things from that moment on, gladly. I suffered. I experienced the loss of all things. That means that the trap door went out from under him, and he shot right out and lost everything about the cosmos. He lost all his badges of glory as a Hebrew of Hebrews, as a Pharisee of Pharisees, as a blameless man according to the laws, an eighth-day circumcision man as one who outshined all his contemporaries in seminary, all that stuff. I suffered or experienced the loss of it all, he says, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. In the the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, there's nothing in this world I want by comparison. There's nothing, a lottery, that's to me is excrement. Riches, glory, fame, popularity, the wealth that goes with it, uh, compared to the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, that's scubula, and I'm being polite. Once you have this, and once you understand that justification is not a judicial imputation, but a change of controlling allegiance. Then you'll understand what I'm talking about. And I think last night introduced it properly. The aim of this whole thing, our immersion into his death, 
is so that we can walk in newness of life. A very wonderful phrase, walk in newness of life, is the life that constitutes our rectification because when we were justified, we were justified with life, life-giving justification. Justification can't be a legal imputation if Paul calls it life. A life is given to us. We are made alive in Christ Jesus. Because we died with him. No one alive can be justified in God's sight, so we died. No one alive can be justified in God's sight, Psalm 143.2, so Christ died. The most important thing that we must understand about justification is that Jesus was the one that was justified. And he was justified in his faithful death. In the climax of his obedience to the Father, his faithfulness to the Father, he died. So therefore, no one alive can be justified. So Christ died and was justified in his death and was given life in resurrection because he was justified in his death. Now, if one died for all, as 2 Corinthians says, before Romans was written, then all died. Now, if Christ was justified in in his dying, in his death, and you died with him, what's that say about you? It says you were justified when Christ died. That's why the Bible says that we have been justified by his blood in Romans 5.9. That's why the Bible says we have been reconciled by his death in Romans 5.10. That's why the scripture says that we were justified by his faithfulness, his faithful obedience to the death of the cross. That's why the Bible says that all humankind are justified, rectified, brought into a change of controlling allegiance by Christ's one righteous act. Now, newness of life. The life that constitutes our rectification, our being set right with God. It's the life of, it's called the newness of life, kainoteti, because it is the life of the new creation. A life that is embodied in Christ and in the church in the Israel of God. We're coming full circle back to the Israel of God, which is the insight that spawned all these other insights. The Israel of God, as Paul called it, in the height of his brash boldness and audacity, is the present embodiment of the new creation. Read Galatians 6.16, then backwards to 6.15, and realize how that creation came about in 6.14 by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This newness of life means that newness characterizes the life of the age that was ushered in with Christ's faithfulness, with Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It is the life and the new livingness. I like that word coined by Moltmann, livingness. It is a livingness. That is out from death, away from death, away from the controlling fear of death and damnation. It is a life apart from the controlling fear of death and damnation. 
It is the life that is lived in participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God. Galatians 2.20. I was crucified with Christ. I can't be justified by the works of the law, Paul says in verse 21, because if I am, Christ died in vain. Paul sets up the antinomy there, the opposing factors. It isn't between my faith and the works of the law. It's Christ's death versus the works of the law. We're justified by Christ's death, not by my faith. Faith is a gift given subsequent to my salvation by being made alive in Christ. I wasn't made alive in Christ because I believed. I was made alive in Christ while I was dead in transgressions. When is this going to come? You see, we're invading now the citadel of the human will, which is the citadel and height and the protected fortress of human arrogance. That's why people fight against it. It has nothing to do with doctrinal preferences. It has everything to do with God doesn't invade my will because he's a gentleman. I don't even have words that, are, that escape vulgarity to describe that stupidity. But the worst kind of stupidity is the ignorance that's in tandem with arrogance. That's, I hate it in me. I hate it everywhere it's manifested. So, we're talking about the life and the new livingness that is away from death. It is a life that's lived in participation with the faithfulness of the Son of God. It is not the life of the transient evil age somehow improved. Go to a bookstore. Find a thousand books under the psychology and self-improvement section. All they want to do is for you to improve your life, which is death and transgressions, to make it a little better. That is absolute not, that's a totally antagonistic to the gospel of Christ. The newness of life we're talking about is not the life, quote, life, not really life, it's really death, the life of the transient evil age somehow improved. That life, air quotes, is being dead in trespasses in Ephesians 2.1. The newness of life that Paul is talking about is that which emerges from our death with Christ. Our death to this age. Our death, which means our loss of all things of this cosmos. And Paul himself testifies in Philippians 3.7. I have suffered. And that doesn't mean suffered. It means experienced. I have undergone or experienced the loss of all things because of Christ. That means he's experienced or has undergone the loss of all his badges of honor according to the flesh and according to the measure of the transient age that's on the way out. This age is on the way out. We walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 4, precisely by fire the arrow forward walking in the spirit. We walk in newness of life precisely by walking in under the influence of the Spirit. Romans 8, 4. 
And the spirit has also invaded this evil age in the second divine mission and stands against the flesh. It's the only effective power that stands against the flesh, another superhuman cosmic power, which Paul calls the flesh. The flesh lusts, desires, has ambition or is ambitious against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In other words, the only power equal to the flesh is not your intense will, but God the Holy Spirit. Romans 5, or make that Galatians 5.17. I'm crossing some borders tonight, but that's all right. Only, only the spirit can withstand its lust in us and pour out the love of God in our hearts in Romans 5.5. 5. Walking in newness of life, that phrase is hand in hand with serving our Lord and one another in the newness of the Spirit, Romans 7, 6, by love, Galatians 5, 13. This newness of life in the Spirit is the livingness, the quality of living. I used to call it and still do. A higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus and by the Spirit. A living that is impacted, influenced, and actually created through the divine missions, the invasions into this evil age by the Son of God, the sending of the Son by the Father, and the sending of the Spirit by the Father and the Son into this world. So this newness of life in the Spirit is the livingness, love that word, that is away from, apo is the word, and out from under the elemental forces of this cosmos, this present evil but thankfully transient aeon. I'm so happy that this evil age is transient. All the stuff we see that's disturbing in the news is passing away. It, pa- it happens and then it passes away. It happens and it passes away. But the age that has been ushered in with Christ's death and resurrection is here to stay. Romans 6, 5. Look at this. Now, I've, I've led up to this because there's some stuff here that just I'm going to have to be spending a lot of time hammering out. Verse 5, my translation. For if we have become united with him, and we have, in the likeness of his death, so we will likewise be united with him in resurrection. For we know that our paleo man, I translate that because the word is actually palaios, P-A-L-A-I-O-S, palaios, paleo. And by paleo or palaios, when you think of the paleolithic era, you're talking about an era gone by. That man of the Paleolithic era is obsolete. His actions are obsolescent. He's not, he doesn't count. He's not in vogue anymore. He's the person under Adamic ontology. So we know, verse 6, that our Paleo man, this is being cross-eyed now, staros-eyed. The Paleo man is the now obsolete human being who is worse for wear by being under the controlling allegiance to sin. That guy or that woman is obsolete. 
we know that our paleo man was crucified together. Sustarao. Sustarao is the word here, and it has right in the heart of it the cross. S-T-A-U-R-O, omega O. Star. That's why I say we are starry eyed. S-T-A-U-R means the verbal form of staros, cross. So we know that our paleo man was crucified together with, sustarao, together with Christ. So that the body of sin, now someone will say, the body of sin means our sin nature. No, it does not mean our sin nature. The body of sin means sin, capital S-I-N, as an embodied or personified cosmic power. This is apocalyptic theology. Paul was an apocalypticist. Paul can only be understood as apocalyptic Paul. So that the body of sin would be rendered powerless. That is the actual superhuman cosmic power of hamartia sin. It's rendered powerless where you're concerned because you were immersed into the death of Christ. Now you can look at the cross as an object or you can have the cross as the controlling factor in your life. That's the difference. That's the difference. And that's what Jesus was referring to when he said, take up your cross. Take up your cross. We can look at his cross or we can look at his cross and take up our cross, which means understand that we too have been crucified with him. So we know that our paleo man the one who's worse for wear by being under the controlling allegiance to sin, was crucified together with Christ so that the body of sin, which is sin as a cosmic personified power, would be rendered powerless. That means powerless to control our allegiance. So that in turn, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Not our sin nature, but once again, it is a very, uh, not obscure at all, but very clear that sin here is unveiled by Paul to be a cosmic personified suprahuman power that is now stripped of its control of us by our co-crucifixion and co-resurrection with Christ. Now look at this verse. This verse 7 is phenomenal. It says, for the one who died is justified away from sin. Justified, that means rectified and brought into a new allegiance. Now, wait a minute. Who is the one who died? It's not just any old one who died here. We're talking about Ho, that looks like this. It's the hard breathing, H-O. And then A-P-O-T-H-A-N, where we get that word thanatos, O-N. And this is the soft breathing. So we have ha, 
apothanon accent here. Ha apothanon, the one who died. Who is it? Who is the one who died? Because I'm asking that because the one who died was justified in his death. Because no one alive can be justified in God's sight. So the one who died was justified in dying in his death. He was justified. Who is he? Who is this person? Look at Romans 8.34. Now who can lay any charge to the God, to the elect ones of God? Christ, the one who died. Who's the one who died? Christ. You say, but I thought it was me. Well, it is you too, because when one died, all died. One died for all, then all died. But when the one who died, died, it says he was justified. Hmm. He was made to be sin, but in his death, he was justified away from sin. So who is the one who died here? This is, I'm not talking about some soteriocentric gospel. I'm talking about a Christocentric gospel. We're talking about the one who died is Jesus Christ. But what does it say? The one who died is justified. That makes sense of a verse that always used to trouble me in 1 Timothy 3.16. Great, without dispute, confessedly great, is the mystery of true piety. That which was manifest in the flesh, divinity manifest in the flesh, seen by angels, preached in the world, believed on in the world, etc., was justified by the Spirit. Justified by the Spirit. He was resurrected by the Spirit, according to Romans 1.4. He was justified by the Spirit, according to the interpretive word of 1 Timothy 3.16. Who is the one who died? Christ. What happened when he died? He was justified. When Christ died, all died. When Christ died, Christ was justified. When Christ died and was justified, all died and were justified. That's the gospel. You just heard it right here on Clint Eastwood's birthday. Now, no, I don't celebrate it as a holiday. It just happened to pop up on one of my phone things, which I'm sick of. Now, the one who died is Christ. Christ is the one who died. Paul says it in 834. Who's going to condemn you? Christ the one who died, ho apathanon. So in Romans 6, 7, it's not any other that he's speaking of, but ho apathanon. For the one who died is justified away from sin. The one who died is Christ. And this is what 1 Timothy 3.16 means when it articulates this indisputably great mystery of true worship and piety. This is what really affects and creates in you a devotedness and a change of allegiance, this awesome truth that God came in the flesh, Jesus, and that he was justified by the Spirit. 
Read it in 1 Timothy 3.16. And this is why Psalm 143.2 is such a key interpretive verse. Because again, Paul doesn't say it. He lets the psalm say it by alluding to it in Romans 3.20. No one living can be justified in God's sight. So he says to the teacher, so if no one living at all, no matter what they do by any human means can be justified, then we're certainly not justified by doing the works of the law. And added to that, he goes all the way into Romans 10 to add to this, and I'm adding to it as well by saying this, no one alive can be justified by the human act of believing even if that act is made effective, quote, close quote, by God the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ's faithfulness is already effective to justify. His death has justified us. We've been justified by his blood. We've been justified by his faithfulness. We've been justified by his obedience. We've been justified by his death. Because when one died for all, all died. When one died, the one who died was justified. All who died with him were justified, which is all. It's already done. The tenses of being inside the eternal God are the way we see. Nobody can be justified by works because God is all cross-eyed too. He can't see you. He's cross-eyed, which means a cross is what he sees through. Now, the things I've said tonight, you're not understanding fully, probably, with a handful of exceptions. The reason for that is I haven't articulated it like I ought to yet. So I'm asking for prayer. So, going a little bit beyond, this is a mess. This is part two. Two messages tonight, Pastor Brown kicked it off. That's why I didn't open in prayer. It was already rolling. I just got on the wave. I ought to do this more often. So Christ died to be justified, and he rose to life as the dramatic display of his justification. But again, when he who died, ha Apathanon, that's Jesus Christ, he who died. When he died, when he who died died and was justified from sin, so all died, and so all were justified away from sin at the cross. When he said it is finished, meant more than we thought, meant more than I thought in 1978. After all, I was only like five years old then. How could I know? Just joking. Jesus is the one who died. Ha apathonon. God is the one who justifies. It says right in the next phrase. God is the one who justified. Who's going to condemn? God who justified? Who's going to accuse Christ who died. And you put those two together, God justified Christ who died. Justifying Christ who died, he justifies all of us because that's the one act of righteousness, his death, his faithful death. 
this, I love this in one way because the Holy Spirit's going to teach you this, and when he does, you're going to go, whoa, you're going to wake up. There's a, you'll wake up to a whole new kind of thinking and knowing and being even beyond what you have before. God is the one who justified Jesus. So Jesus was justified. It says, Apo, away from sin. He who became sin in his faithful obedience to the extent of death on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21, was justified away from sin in his death and given life in resurrection. Moreover, he died for all, and so all died. Consequently, when he who died was justified away from sin, so we were all, all human beings, were justified when he was justified away from sin. Now this goes back, the arrow goes backwards now to Romans 1.17, the righteous one who was justified, the righteous one was justified in his death. It goes back to 326, which we may hit on some Sunday morning. It goes back to Romans 518, where all are given life-giving justification. And it goes all the way back to 5311 of Isaiah, which says that by his experience of agony, many will be rectified or justified by his knowledge, which is his experience of agony at the cross. Many, which means all, will be rectified. Isaiah fifty three eleven. So verse 8 in closing. Now having died with Christ, having died with Christ. We believe. <laughs> Here comes believing now. Where? Having died with Christ. And in dying with him, we're justified. Now we're believing. Now, having died with Christ, we believe that we will live with him. It doesn't say we believe to be justified. It says, having been justified by his death, now we believe. That means we have confidence that we will live with him. And that means even now... We live with him, but then in bodily resurrection completely. Even now, but then completely. Better than not better than now and not yet is even now, but then completely. Having died with Christ, we were justified. Because no one alive can be justified. So if you're still alive and you hear the gospel and you believe it, God will say, well, I'm making an exception there because though they're still alive, they have acted in a human way to believe. Therefore, because they have believed, I am going to justify them. That's not what happens. What is our faith now? Having died, we were justified. Does it not say in Romans 5, 9... Being justified by his blood, a.k.a. his death, a.k.a. his faithfulness, a.k.a. his obedience, a.k.a. his righteous act by which all are counted righteous. 
Does it not say that we were justified by his death and therefore the faith by which we are justified is the faith that had an advent when Christ came into the world and the faith that ended in an event of his obedience to death by crucifixion. We are justified by the death of Jesus Christ, the climax of his faithfulness. And then we're given faith to believe and have a great confidence for a hope for future. Because faith says the Bible, when it takes time to define it once and for all, does not say faith is the means by which we are justified. It says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. If we died with Christ and we did, then we got something to hope for. Living with Christ in a resurrection body in immortality, incorruptibility, and glory forever in a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation, but it's already begun now. Even now, but then completely. So you tell me, what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So Paul says, having died with Christ, in other words, having been justified by dying with Christ, having that all over with, now we believe. So who in the God's name has the right to say that believing precedes justification or is the means or even the instrumentality of it? Well, the reformers said, reformer, reformer. I'm not saying that against all of them because some of them got the point. So now our faith is confident expectation of our own resurrection, which even now we have in the form of a newness of life. And at the parousia, we will have completely in the form of bodily incorruptibility and immortality. So I'll leave you with this. Take notice of the fact that our believing does not lead to justification. But our justification is by Christ's death, which we died with him. The believing is the subsequent gift of confidence in our future bodily resurrection and in the recapitulation of all things, all creation in all of its times, all humanity in all of its settings in all of its cultures in all of its historical sequence recapitulated under the headship of Christ, given the gift of a controlling allegiance under the Lord Jesus Christ, whose only requirement of us is freedom for faith is the assurance of things hoped for that's all thank you father I pray that you'll grant me the grace the articulation which can only come from the spirit of truth to further explicate and explain and exegete and expound the truth of a Christological salvation that has already been wrought for all of us, which is so transformative of our thinking, 
so radically transfigurative of our way of knowing and thinking so that we will be in fact encouraged to present ourselves our bodies as a living sacrifice to you for the purpose of the renewing the radical renewal of our mind and be transformed by it